0: You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. Ha. This sound like theme music. Motivation to grind and get you through it. Church, I'm bothered never lose and Check the score. Jamal, show improving. don't make me tell you 511 times. From politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My work, how I live You don't want to miss
1: it. I was born to get it. Last week, I opened the podcast talking about. Two mass shootings in this country one in Buffalo another in Orange County that were barely 24 hours apart both of them hate crimes and now here we are maybe a week later or a little over a week and I'm opening the podcast again talking about another mass shooting not again That is the overwhelming sentiment felt across the country tonight and here in the state of Texas after more innocent lives are lost in a mass shooting. This time at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas.
0: We've just learned the death toll is up to 19 children and two school employees gunned down during their last week of school. Police say the 18-year-old suspect shot his grandmother before the rampage and then was shot and killed by responding officers. It happened at Rob Elementary School in Uvalde, which is about two hours west of San Antonio.
1: 19 children, two adults, dead. The visuals are unbearable. It's going to be a long time before I forget how... The parents of these children waiting all day at this school, hysterical, angry, grieving, going through emotions I can't possibly imagine. Some of them well into the night because they were waiting to learn if their children were dead. At one point, the authorities had to start doing DNA swabs of the parents to help investigators identify the bodies because they were that badly damaged some of the children could only be identified by their backpacks. The shooter was an 18-year-old who started the day by shooting his grandmother in the face. He barricaded himself inside of a classroom and unloaded his weapon on fucking children. I honestly had to stop looking at the photos because it was just too much. But now that I've been able to collect myself a little bit, The shit that we really need to be real about in this country are things we don't want to face, but we have to be real about them. Because as much as I want to believe this is the rock bottom moment, this is going to be the thing that finally topples this house of cards of violence and gun culture in this country. I know it's not. We don't give a fuck about these kids. We, as in our country, our political system, which is supposedly designed to protect its citizens, especially its most vulnerable population, we do not give one single solitary fuck about these children. How do I know this? To loosely quote James Baldwin, I can't believe what you say because I see what you do. Texas Governor Greg Abbott, among the first to tweet out, you guessed it, thoughts and prayers. Even though he signed a bill into law last year that allows Texans to carry handguns without a license or training. Also in Texas, you only have to be 18 years old to purchase an assault rifle, which this gunman did on his 18th birthday. And then he purchased another one a few days later and then he bought 300 rounds of ammo. Here's a fun fact that you can repeat at parties. Governor Abbott signed off on banning the 1619 project from being taught in K through 12 schools, even though the Pulitzer Prize winning project hasn't killed any fucking children. He considered that more of a threat than people being allowed to carry guns without any license or training. We absolutely do not give a fuck about these kids. In Florida, they're preventing educators from acknowledging and discussing sexual identity in schools. In multiple states, trans kids are being banned from participating in sports. We have over 400 million guns in this country, more guns than citizens. We make up 5% of the world's population, but own 40% of the world's civilian-owned guns. We do not give a fuck about these kids. In 1996, a gunman murdered 35 people in Australia, injured 23 others. The country immediately moved to establish a national gun registry required permits for gun purchases, and banned all semi-automatic rifles and semi-automatic and pump-action shotguns. They created a government buyback program that resulted in them retrieving some 650,000 guns. They've had one mass shooting since instituting these reforms, compared to having mass shootings in 13 of the 18 years prior. Something happened, they did something about it. We do not give a fuck about these kids. In New Zealand, 72 hours after a mass shooter murdered 50 people in a mosque in New Zealand, the country banned military style assault weapons. No mass shooting since. And before those stricter policies, this was a country where the gun laws were so lax, you didn't even have to register your gun if you bought one. We do not give a fuck about these kids. In America, you can't buy more than two boxes of Sudafed in a month because it contains ingredients that you can make meth with. But in Texas, as soon as you turn 18, you can buy a gun you saw on Call of Duty. No license, no training. We do not give a fuck about these kids. There have been 212 mass shootings. As of the taping of this podcast, more mass shootings than actual days in the year. 27 of those shootings have been school shootings. We keep asking, what now? We keep yelling, do something. But we already know what the next step is. We know what the next step is. Absolutely nothing. And now on to today's show. My guest today spent a lifetime, ironically, Enough, considering my comments a moment ago, practicing nonviolence as a form of resistance and as a method to bring awareness to structural inequality and racism, misogyny, bigotry and other societal ills. She has studied and practiced nonviolence because she was inspired by her father, who is, I want to say, the greatest humanitarian that this country has ever produced. Maybe the greatest humanitarian this world has ever produced, certainly in the conversation. She has followed in his footsteps by becoming a minister, and she's spoken all over the world about his teachings. She is an author and CEO of a center dedicated to nonviolent social change that was started by her late mother, who also was a tremendous humanitarian. She is a member of one of the most prominent families in American history. Coming up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered.
0: Really silly
1: question I have off the bat is because obviously you're Dr. King, we know your father is Dr. King. Sometimes when people say it in your company, do you have to say which one are you talking about?
2: It depends on what they add to it. I can determine by what they say. (laughs) Okay, all right. But there are times when I'm listening to other people and they're explaining something and they will use both. And if they don't clarify, Dr. Bernice King, it does sound confusing to the average listener. You have to really listen co- closely to distinguish.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like, I always wonder. I was like, do people sometimes, if they're speaking of you both, if you're like, hmm. Maybe with context clues, I know which one that you're talking.
2: Context, yeah, helps. And uh, maybe adding Dr. Doctor... Some people call me Dr. Bea King. And some people just say Bernice. <laughs> That's my name. I always tell people my name is Bernice. I'm not a titled person. I use them in certain instances uh, when it's, you know, appropriate. And, you know, if if I feel like, for instance, I don't use the title reverend, but I use it when we're dealing with an important historical moment for people to know when I'm no longer here that Dr. King had um, a child that was in ministry. So, you know, it just depends on what it is as to whether I use the titles. But for me, I wouldn't need them otherwise.
1: Well, I always thought it might be disrespectful to, uh, is, you know, if you if you've gotten your doctorate to not call you by that because it represents an incredible achievement that you, you have.
2: Yeah, people feel that way. And, and I, I, I get it and I understand. But, you know, I just I prefer my name. And as I say to people, if you feel comfortable using the title, that, that's fine. Um, I'll respond either way.
1: Well, uh, before we get into the teeth of the numerous questions I have to ask you, I'm going to start with a question I ask every guest who appears on this show, since it's called Jamel Hill is Unbothered. When did you become unbothered?
2: I wouldn't say I'm 100 percent there. It's, it's an evolution for me, because obviously I'm, I'm bombarded with these in, inevitable comparisons to my parents and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm working through all of that, that process, but I would say I'm probably 85% there. What I can say is that the way that I'm wired, whatever it is I feel, and I feel deeply, if people don't understand, it will sometimes bother me that they don't understand, but I don't get stuck there. Let me, let me just say it that way, because I'm very sensitive, even though I'm strong, <laughs> I'm very sensitive. And I know we live in a, our world is not black and white. You know, there's a lot of grace to me. There are some things that I obviously have matured to understand. And there's some things that all of us of conscience realize should be the case. But as you get older, you 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 begin to grasp that life is very complicated, sometimes convoluted, and that there's certain realities that are going to be present in any generation of time. There's always going to be evil forces. So you can't have the superficial optimism, you know, that we can get to this kind of utopia, but we can get to a place where we can create the kind of society and world where we can work through differences, conflicts, etc. Now, I am more uh, cautiously optimistic that way. But I do realize, again, there's so many people in the world, some people just, they'll, they'll never uh, get to a place where they are, quote unquote, fulfilled within themselves and not making hell for everybody else. There's just going to be some people like that, unfortunately. But I can't let it all to me. But
1: <laughs> do you think we give too much energy and oxygen to what is just a very loud minority? Yes. OK.
2: We don't give oxygen to the right things, the right voices. I mean, as soon as, you know, some dissension, some divisiveness, some whatever comes up, that just tends to catch on. And, and it's like a wild fight. And everything else is kind of, you know, pushed to the side, a little muted, et cetera. I do believe that. I always said when President Trump was in the office, it's one thing to reveal, you know, what he was doing, how he was doing it. But we kept pounding, 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 giving him more air, giving him more action, giving him more attention, you know, giving him more of a platform. And that's why, honestly, there's so much that happens in the social media world. I can't get in a back and forth over and over with people who misappropriate my father's words and his work. There are some times that I have to address it, but I'm not going to address it and keep going back and forth. Because guess what? That only gives that person a greater platform. You often look and say, "Mm, how many followers do do they have? You know what I'm saying? How many friends do they have? Do I want to increase that? So you have to think about that critically, because the more you do that and you're not blowing up that platform. So it's a delicate balance to know when you have to, because you don't want to let it sit there. But if it's just a few people, few, you know, retweets or whatever, it's like, let that down in the vine.
1: Well, I'm sure you thought this, which is why you did it. But th- his most recent birthday, I mean, you had to or observance. I thought what you said to, to Senator Josh Howley was entirely appropriate because he had put out a video that was completely misappropriating who your father was, what he stood for, what your family, I should say, stood for. And so for you to acknowledge and correct him on on social media, because I think the gist of the video was that somehow uh, Dr. King would have been against critical race theory. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> and, it, and it was entirely disingenuous. And I know That people do that a lot, but it has got to be even more damaging when you see people in that position and authority do that when it comes to your father's work.
2: Yeah, but, you know, being a Christian, people misappropriate the Bible. They've been doing it for centuries. And so I'm a minister of the gospel, so I've been trained um, in in ministry. And because I have that early training and knowledge, you know, my father is no greater than Jesus Christ, certainly God, no greater than God. Um, or not even equal to them, and so if they did that to God. They do that to the Bible. They, you know, it's that's why I said I just I have to balance it all, because even though people have done that with Jesus, God, etc., there's still Christianity is still a, a, very humongous religion. And over time, I believe truth, as Daddy said truth will rise again. And in the end, these are his words. He said, "Unarmed truth." And unconditional love will win in the end. And so I have to stick with that. And and the way I balance it is what you said. You know, you kind of hit it and you don't dwell there. You know, you do just enough. Because if you dwell there again, what happens is that person's platform just does this, 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 this. this. And it's at my, you know, expense. And I'm I'm not going to do that. So, yes, it was appropriate to do it and say it, but not go you know, back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. It's a lightning rod. And then all of a sudden, he's got 2 million, 3 million, 4 million, 5 million, 10 million followers. It's like, no, 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 no. Hit it and and then put the little fire out and keep moving and let the truth sit there. Because I tell people all the time, I say this to an audience, and it's probably hard to understand. And I don't even know how to break it all the way down. But I said, truth doesn't need help. All you need to do is put it out there. And when you put it out there, the more people that catch on and they put it out there, that's all you have to do. I mean, it is what it is. I mean, truth is just truth. Yeah, there'll be, you know, other narratives of whatever. But I've seen just living as long as I've lived what daddy said, that truth crushed the earth will rise again. I've seen like, for instance, when we were in Vietnam, you know, at the time, everybody, you know, there was there's a battle in our country about, you know, the war. And us being in Vietnam, it was finally acknowledged, you know, in the later 70s that that was a mistake. The truth of what my father was saying, you know, was was revealed. Uh, And so that's why, yes, you put the truth out there and you keep going. You don't have to banter with the person. Just keep speaking the truth. Because I think one of the things we do too often is we get stuck on the person. And that's why, you know, in nonviolence, we teach people to stay focused on the issue. We're not trying to defeat the person. You know, we're trying to establish the truth, defeat the injustice, uh, not not the person. Because people have to catch up, you know. They got so much stuff in them that, that has to be purged, that has to be that, you know, and sometimes people will never purge. You know, there are things they have to be exposed to and learn, in the end, it's, it's not as cut and dry as we would like it to be. And And I've been in all kind of processes. I remember I used to consider myself uh so pro-black that everything I looked at was through the lens of racism, everything literally. That's the way I process life. If anything happened, it was like, that's racism. But I don't do that anymore.
1: Mm. So how do you look through, you know, what's your lens? What would you say? How would you describe it now?
2: Well, I mean, there are various ways. I mean, some of it is people are not exposed, they're, they're ignorant. If you grow up insulated in a world and that's all you know, and suddenly you come into contact with somebody who sounds alive light and say, hey, there's some truth over here, or there's some myth here that you don't quite understand and get, then they're gonna remain like that. And it's gonna be hard as people get older. That's why we have to do things starting at the youngest age. And that's, that's why there's this whole uh, attack now on the, the young age, <laughs> you know, because people know that if they get it at that age, you know, this that we've been dealing with forever, we wouldn't be dealing with. And so I first approach people by saying, OK, that person is ignorant or they may be racist and they can't shake it. You know, but what am I going to do? My, I, I always my, my attitude is whatever influence that I can have, whatever seed I can sow, that's what I'm going to do, because I'm not responsible for somebody's change. But I am responsible for leaving them with what is true. But truth sometimes, oh this is so hard to, to explain. You know, when my father developed his philosophy of nonviolence, he, he, he studied a man by the name of Hegel. And Hegel talked about the tension, the, the, the T-thesis and the antithesis and the, the tension that exists uh, between two thoughts. And what my father learned by this is that you have this thesis, you have this antithesis, and then you have the synthesis of all of that, which means that there are threads of truth in in every position. My father was able to find threads of truth in things that he mostly disagreed with. And you get to this higher truth. And so the way I look at it is that my job is to elevate people to a place where I can hear what they're saying and try to find if there's any thread of truth to what they might be saying. And can I take that thread of truth and then match it with my thread of truth? Now somebody may say my thread of truth 70%, is 5%, that doesn't matter. The point is there's a higher truth that we have to get to. And so, you know, again, I try to categorize things as ignorant. Some things as racist, depending on the context and the history of the person, you know, cause you do have to study that background to see, you know, what this person has been exposed to, who they've been, what has been their platform, what is in their consistency. And that, that's the information, And I think if somebody
1: says something, we immediately think racist. But it might not be racist. The process you're describing is is finding common ground. And it feels like that's harder to do these days. It is. It's very hard. Our politics are very extreme. There's a lot of outrage, a lot of anger, period. So what, as somebody who is in nonviolent work, who is also, you know, a minister, you know, how much more challenging is that for you in this time, considering the work that you do?
2: Actually, it's less challenging for me in this time
1: than it was before, strangely enough. Now, I did did not expect you to say that. It
2: is. It is. You know, because I'm a different person. I've moved. I shift. And I see the world differently. I see people. I see humankind differently. I know there's good in the worst of us and bad in the best of us. And so I have grown to a place, and I'm still growing. I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to say I'm 100% there. I would say I'm probably 65 to 70% there. I've gotten to a place where I can shut down my opinion enough to listen. Because again, my goal is not to prove you wrong or to put you down or to shame you. My goal is to figure out how do I elevate you? And so I have to listen long enough to see what this is, where this is coming from, because all of this stuff comes from somewhere, whether it's ignorance, upbringing, anger, you know, et cetera. And what kind of revealed this even more to me, there was a protest during all of the situation after George Floyd. And there was an individual that was a part of one of the white supremacist groups, and they ended up. In an area where there were you know some of the people under the banner of Black Lives Matter, and that person said to that white supremacist person, "Why do you hate me?" And you know what the guy said "I don't know. There is so much trauma in this nation all the way around, some greater than the other, but nonetheless it's trauma and I learned by uh, inviting some of the former Klans members, former neo-Nazis, former skinheads, that some of the same reason they end up in those extreme places is the same reason our Black kids end up in gangs. They're looking for a place to belong because they come from such brokenness. And they end up in these worlds, and they don't, they're just doing it out of their own hole and need and void. And then they become old pe- older people, adults, and they keep doing it. But they started as, you know, 15-year-old, 14-year-old, whatever, 13. And it's like, they don't even know they're just doing it. It's just now it's second nature. But they're doing it out of that pain in their own life. And they're causing much pain in other people's lives. And the problem is with all of this, that's one layer that we have to contend with. But the real layer are the people who are true, who are keeping the systems and structures in place that keep us, you know, some of the whites that are in communities that have some of the same challenges that we have in terms of economics, keep us like this so that their system and structure that they have can stay in place and it can continue to undergird their own personal economy. So that's what the issue is that we have to begin to really look at And sometimes we get caught on this this low-level fighting, you know, with folks, they're just straight up hurting, they're ignorant, their stuff is so embedded in them, and they don't even know they're being
1: used. They don't. And guess what? We're all being exploited. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... uh, your your father obviously he did a lot of work around uniting people at, at a certain economic level with the poor people's campaign party and because he understood yeah that this is an issue of of economics um because you have people they want the fight to take place at that level so that we will take as they say so you will not know who's minding the store <laughs> all right exactly because we're too busy <laughs> fighting over the goods. You know, yesterday um, would have been your mother's 95th birthday. So how did you commemorate her birthday?
2: So we had a special um, Beloved Community Talks yesterday evening with some incredible women, two of whom knew my mother uh, personally, Dr. Janetta Cole, a woman by the name of Doris Crenshaw, who was just 12 years old when the Montgomery uh, movement started. And, um, you know, they shared some very powerful stories, testimony, and and gave some, you know, some important insight. And then I was with, on my side of the panel, because it was um, moderated by Monica Pearson, who for us growing up was Monica Kaufman uh, here in Atlanta. Uh, It was me, my sister Tamika Mallory, and Jyoteka Edie. And, you know, we really uh, had a conversation about how you know my mother has influenced us, but also the work of just Black women in this society, the power of, of Black women and the things that we can do, I think, in a way that no other group can do. And so that was one of the ways that that I celebrated her yesterday, is to really bring together women who knew and then women who've been inspired or influenced by her. That was it. I, went, I actually went to the hair salon yesterday, too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, how often uh, do you run into, I'm sure this has happened consistently through your, uh, your life, but how often are you in conversation with people who knew your mother, uh, who tell you things about her that maybe you didn't know?
2: I've obviously heard different stories from people uh, that I wouldn't know. But because I learned my mother's character and nature, it never surprises me. Like, whoa. There's it, it, never been any of that when they share the story. But if it's like, okay, well, I I didn't know that. So that may happen periodically. Um, I'm, you know, I'm always collecting, you know, stories about her. So, yeah.
1: Well, it was a a book. I read this book a few years ago. Oh, yeah. About your mom. Now,
2: that book, I helped to work with the writer.
1: Right. Because the writer is one of her friends, I think. Barbara Reynolds. Barbara Reynolds, yep.
2: Right. And so my mother interviewed with Barbara Reynolds. Uh, They were working on this book and things didn't work out at that time. And like around 2000. Uh, So she had, you know, numerous conversations with my mother. So I got an opportunity to help Barbara complete the book. And when we were going through it, now, there were a lot of stuff I did not know that, you know, Barbara had revealed from her conversations with my mother that were in the book. And that was like, wow, I didn't know that. I mean, that just totally shocked me. I'll tell you what I didn't know that I discovered. After her death, my mother attended Antioch College, still around, in Yellow Springs, Ohio, liberal arts college. I did not know that my mother did not graduate in the four-year, six-year cycle that people, you know, when they go to college, they graduated. But my mother talked about Antioch, you know, in her lifetime, you know, it just never came out that her matriculation was in that, you know, successive time period getting her degree. I discovered after her death and when my sister passed, because my sister was over her state, and then I was the person that took over her state after my sister suddenly passed. I discovered in a box, you know, her degree. And I looked at it and I said, I think it said 67, sixty-seven. What What is this story here? So I had to go on a search because I was puzzled and shocked. I thought my mother started school in 44, 45, and she finished four, actually I thought she finished four years later. I then also discovered it was six years that she matriculated there. And she just left and went to New England Conservatory Music. My logic was she graduated from Antioch and immediately went to New England. No, she finished Antioch after six years, which I didn't know it was even six. And then I had to ask her sister, who was still living after she died, what was that about? And she didn't really want to talk in detail about it because there were some things that happened when my mother was in college where she had to stand up for herself. And I don't think the administrators appreciated it at the time, even though this is a liberal arts college, a little bit more open. My mother wanted to do her student teaching at the Yellow Springs, uh, in the Yellow Springs school district, but it was still segregated. And she was upset about that, so she petitioned them. She then went to the president of the college, and the president of the college would not stand up for. Her, and she spoke out about it. And I think my aunt was feeling, even though she didn't tell me this, this is what I was sensing, just by certain gestures and little bit that she was saying, that you know they mistreated Coretta uh, or Corey, as she would call it. They they mistreated her because it's like retaliatory. Well, I then discovered from a young lady who now works for us at the King Center as our chief research education and programs officer, who's done extensive research on my mother, that my mother didn't pass the specific test at Antioch. Now, the test probably was a a more subjective grading because it was essay oriented, so you know how that goes. (laughs) And that may be what my aunt's saying, that, you know, they just didn't want to pass her, even though she took it. But the test happened to be in the area, it wasn't directly these words, but this is what it was for that time, in the area of social change. So here you have this woman in the midst of this movement that is changing society, (laughs) you know. And so I guess they said, you know, we better give her her degree because we're not going to. This is going to come back to haunt us.
1: This is going historically look terrible. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a very quick break, and we'll be back with more with Dr. Bernice King. This conversation with Dr. Bernice King reminded me of something I discovered in college, and that is that white people generally aren't that curious about people of other races or maybe just when it comes to black people. And I got a story to tell about how I figured out that white people just don't want to know that much about us Negroes. My college years at Michigan State was the first time I really lived in close proximity with white people, as in the first time I actually lived with white people, period. My freshman year, my roommate was Colombian, and my suite mates, the two girls who lived next door that I had to share a bathroom with, were two white girls who grew up in an area outside of Detroit called Sterling Heights. Now, when I was growing up, we called it Sterling Whites. You get the obvious reason why. One day... Me and my mates, we got into a conversation about shit we learned in school, and I threw out a few names at them about things I learned coming up, and in high school in particular. I threw out Malcolm X, Harriet Tubman, which when it comes to Black history, that's like throwing out Burger King and Gatorade. Even for white people, I feel like these are well-known Black people, or they should be. And much to my surprise, my two suitemates from Sterling White's had no earthly idea who. They were me asking them, y'all ain't never heard of the autobiography of Malcolm X. Them. Nope. What about the Underground Railroad? That ring a bell? Them. Nope. Three-fifths compromise, Marcus Garvey, Jim Crow. I mean, I went through as much cursory black history as I could. They didn't know shit about shit. They knew about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., of course, and Abraham Lincoln. And that was it. I mean, I couldn't believe it. And then they told me that they were pretty sure that they had never observed Dr. Martin Luther King's birthday as a national holiday in school, even though they grew up in Michigan, where it had been a law since forever, basically. I thought they were lying because ain't no way, right? Is there? Meanwhile, when they asked me shit about George Washington and that fake ass cherry tree story, Susan B. Anthony, Ronald Reagan, and virtually any significant historical event that was primarily told from a white perspective or white centered, I knew all of that shit. And somewhere in this exchange, that's when it hit me square in the chest to the point where I wasn't even mad at my sterling white friends. Hard to care about some shit you aren't even curious about. Because being real, I realized that white people had no reason to be curious about us. It's not like they longed for our company. Their immediate surroundings were so white that they didn't even have to wonder about our existence at all. It sounds harsh, but we were unseen and disposable to them. I'm sure that isn't how my mates meant it or how they felt. But they never understood the weight of growing up in an environment where people of color didn't even have to matter to you. And now back to more with Dr. Bernice King. You, you said something interesting during the interview that in, in many ways, your mother was a, ahead of your father. In what ways did you mean that?
2: They both were strategists in different ways. But I think he was so into the movement as the leader. He didn't have enough time to really step back and understand what needed to happen to ensure future generations would benefit from what they were doing. And so she had this insight and foresight to see so far off. And it started early on before the movement even got really going. She was already thinking something historical is happening and we need to capture this so when he left to go make his speech with the Montgomery Improvement Association, he was preparing to make a speech as the president that night because that's when the organization was starting and he was nominated to be president. And this was the after the full day of the first day of the boycott. She told someone, take this tape recorder. The only reason we have that speech in those words today is because she insisted that that be recorded. So She was always like, we're in the midst of something. She knew it before him. That's what I'm saying. So in many ways, and then the Vietnam War, she was already a peace activist before they got married. And, you know, was traveling. Once they got married, she went to international peace conferences, Switzerland and all over the place, and really encouraged him to lend his voice to their movement. She said, Martin, you know, the peace movement needs your moral authority and your moral voice. I would hope you would, you know, lend your voice. And, you know, yes, there were other people talking to them about it, but I think because she was already there for years before they got married, and then by the time 67, 66, 67 got here, she was talking more about it, and she was the solid, single, steady voice and presence in that regard that gave him the strength to stand because he was critiqued from every, you talking about cancel culture? He was canceled by all his colleagues in the civil rights movement. And this was public. You know, the Johnson administration, you know, started shifting newspapers. I mean, all of that. But my mother again is the one who was saying that. And then years later, She sees Henry Kissinger after that is assassinated, and he pulls her to the side. He said, Mrs. King, you all were right about Vietnam. So I tell people that book is a manual of how to do a lot of stuff in in leadership and strategy, etc. She was very strategic in how she got my father's reputation and work recognize in the world that 54 years later we're still contending with it, looking at it globally, not just in our society, not just in the Black community, but globally. Um, When I went to the Nobel Museum for an exhibit that we worked on uh, with a a curator um, about my father, which is the most comprehensive exhibit on his life and influence from before he was born to how you know, his work impacted movements today. They revealed to me that out of all of their Nobel laureates, whether you're talking about chemistry, medicine, literature, etc., Dr. King is the most researched. And so not just the most researched Peace Prize laureate, but all categories. And they said over 50% of the people who come to our website on a daily basis are looking for something about Martin Luther King.
1: Well, the the other interesting thing about, it's a lot of interesting things, but one of the things that also struck out to me was in uh, the book that is done about your mother is that it's it's a good blueprint, as you mentioned about strategy, but it also reminds you that even within movements, there's conflicts and tensions and disagreements. And looking today at how how the current movement has that only been shaped? Obviously it has a lot to do with how, you know, your parents shaped the movement, but I look at how some of the conflict and tension is, is, is handled. And I, I think about her book often, cause I'm like, man, people don't know that this has always been the case within movement. So you can't freak out when you see it. And, um, it feels like, today because of social media, because these tensions are given so much more amplification that people think that that is a signal that things aren't working when I'm like, no, that this is generally how it's been. However, I I did come across something interesting you said regarding today's movement. You said what you thought it lacked today was strategy. Uh, What did you mean by that?
2: Well, it seems to me that there's a lot of effort on Bringing attention and awareness to what's happening, and not as much energy on what is the strategy to get to the end goal or what even the end goal is, because you know a lot of people have different thoughts about you know what we ought to be working towards, and the uh, the how you know how should it look, whether you take whether you're talking about dealing with the issue around reimagining policing, defunct, I mean, it's just all this conflict and tension around what is it going to ultimately be that we're trying to get to. There has to be a critical mass of people who agree on that, because otherwise you work against yourself. And I think the beauty of what my father led, he was able to keep a critical mass of people together, not that everybody was with them, we know that. But he had a, a critical mass of people who could agree on the ultimate goal, and even the means to get there. The means meaning making sure that we keep our posture of nonviolence in place as we move toward it. Doesn't mean you're not going to have tension. You're not going to confront stuff, but it means you're going to practice, you know, the principles uh, and follow the steps of nonviolence, and that somebody is going to kind of, you know, be the referee of that from daddy and his camp's point of view. Because, you know, even at that time, people didn't 100% ascribe to it at the level that my father did. He ascribed to it as a way of life. But, you know, he knew how to work with people who saw it tactically, you know, as a tactic to be utilized in this moment. They may not have had the whole piece. And so he worked with that. And he had people on his team who were able to manage all of that. So, you know, I think coming together and deciding what is that ultimate thing and outcome we're trying to achieve and putting together a step-by-step plan that has to be altered, tweaked, because uh, you, you you come against different resistances as you go along. I think that's what that hard work seems to, be, to me to be missing. Now, there are pockets of people, you know, who have entities and organizations like Color of Change, et cetera, that are doing some work like that. But what's happening is everybody's doing a lot of work. But what I don't see is the Nehemiah effect in the Bible, how Nehemiah was able to coordinate and connect the dots so that the energy of what they were doing to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, you know, was flowing together. So even sometimes I was I was reading something that Tamika was going to mention this morning. About the young lady in Russia,
1: Brittany Griner, and
2: you know apparently there's some people working behind the scenes with and, and and you know Tamika was addressing that and her her point was you know people understanding the importance of you know the tension in the streets and what I keep thinking about is how do we connect the activists at heart with people who tend to work internally. Because they're all working, but they're not coordinated and connected. And I think that's why the rate and the level of change is not the level that it, where, where it needs to be. And that was the thing. Daddy worked with Jose, the agitator. It was part of the strategy. In fact, you know, I'm meeting with Johnson as we saw in Selma, but I'm also going to be a part, because Daddy could do, kind of go in and out of all of that. You know, some people are straight activists and they can't do the negotiate and they shouldn't because they don't have the temperament for it. And then there's some people who negotiate, they just don't have the strength of, you know, character or just the, the courage to be in the activist field. But all need to be talking to each other and coordinating the plan of action so that it complements each other. And I think that's what seems to be missing today. And I don't know how you connect it because it's, in a world where everybody is important and got followers and you know, <laughs> audiences and all that, it is it's hard for us to in the church world they call it submit to one another, but it's hard for us to you know coordinate and, and be humble enough to know where to yield in this area to somebody, and then they may yield to me in this area. It's just so difficult. And it's frustrating to me, I'm gonna tell you, as as one who is of it but not in it that way, it's very frustrating because I believe that part of my calling is to help with that. And I I haven't figured out how to do it
1: yet. I think one of the reasons um, there is that fractured sense in the movement uh, currently is that, you know, obviously when it was your dad's time, that time, the movement started out of the black church for the most part. Today is not like that that it's starting in other places. And if anything, it feels like the black church part of it has been left behind. As a minister, you know, who's in this work, you know, how have you seen, you know, the Christian faith, Christian pastors um, handle it or not handle being or feeling connected to the movement that's happening now? Because it definitely feels like this is just my perception. It feels like there is a disconnect there.
2: So let's clarify one thing. There's the institutional Black church and then there are Black pastors. And what I mean by that is there have been Black pastors a part of different, you know, movements that have been happening across the country. We know it. They show up. They, they've been there um, on the front line. There was some there in Ferguson when we went down to Ferguson. And, and so I wouldn't say that there's an absence. I think it's the fragmentation that we experience it. There is not, has not been a collective force out of the black church that has been tied and connected to what's happening. Now, there are some right now working together more, but it seems that there's still the disconnect you're talking about. It's like, like here in Atlanta, there is a group of strong faith leaders that's working around the voting issue. Just from my observation, I'm not sure how tied and connected it has been to some of that younger generation, but yet what the efforts that everybody's doing is towards the same end, which is to make sure that people are registered to vote, to make sure that people understand the importance of voting and then bringing attention to what's happening with the lack of the federal protections in place around voting and trying to put you know, continue pressure there. Uh, so that they are pastors and a collective working together, but again, I just have not seen, doesn't mean it's not happening. I just not have seen the connection. So how do we deal with the fragmentation is is really the 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 question when so many historically it's kind of like the story where when Jesus's parents went to a census registration. And when they were leaving, they traveled a whole day's journey and didn't know they had left Jesus behind. And so they had to travel all the way back to go find him. That's when they found him in the temple. And he said, "You don't you know I should be about my father's business? That's something that needs to be unpacked because that seems to be what has happened is that the collective black church and the collective doesn't mean every single part, but the, a strong force of, of the black church community Kind of got into its own little world and became self-contained, you know, in in the religion of it all, and never kept connected with the culture. Now it shouldn't follow the culture, but it got disconnected from the culture. I remember there was a rapper called um, God, what was his name? L.A. Snow uh, here in Atlanta years ago. He came to visit me and a pastor that I was working with, and he was just sharing with us, you know, the church just does not welcome us. You know, we wanted to you know, do this whole rapping thing. And so we went out and left. And so we didn't know how to embrace what was happening. And more importantly, how to embrace it in a way so that it could it maintain positivity <laughs> as opposed to destructiveness. Uh, and so that's where this all started. The rift. This was right around the, the 90s. And that's why it's like, hey, you know, we got to do what we do because y'all are clueless.
1: The legacy of your family is so enormous. Was it ever a struggle for you to embrace it? You're going to be a king regardless. I mean, I get that part of it. Yeah, I'm going to be one all the time. All the time. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I
2: mean, I tried. But first of all, I ran from my ministry call for eight, eight years because of that. Because I was like, look, I, I want to be Bernice. I don't know what this means by me preaching. Because I had to work all day that I would be a woman and not seeing a lot of women and certainly not somebody so young uh, preaching in, in my, in our Baptist tradition. Uh, although my grandfather was pretty progressive because he had one woman who was licensed to preach in the congregation, but it was like, I need my own identity. And then I didn't want to stay, because I was called as I got a little bit older and understand, okay, I'm probably going to have to yield to this cause it's not going away. I'm not going to even delve into my daddy. I'm not going to study. I'm not going to study. I'm not going to listen to him. Uh-uh. Because I want to be me. Bernie's. I uh, I, Whatever he did, now he did it. That's what he did. <laughs> Let me find out what I want to do and how I want to do it on my own track. So, you know, it wasn't until I was in my 30s where other than in theology school, I had to take one course about him. It wasn't really until the, well, I was in my 30s that I started opening up to reading and listening. And the irony of it is, you know, people will tell me you sound like your father. My mother even told me in my trial son when I was 25. She said, do you remember listening to him? I said, no. She said, do you remember watching him? I said, no. <laughs> she said, because you got gestures like him. To be honest, until my mother left this earth, I was hiding out. I'm peek out. You know, I do some things, had uh, you know, I show up when I need to, whatever. But once she left, I realized, one, I had to grow up rapidly. Two, I had to step into the space to be a part of carrying this legacy forward. At that time, my sister was still around as one of the four. And I started taking it a little bit more seriously and embracing it. And then, It still wasn't quite easy. It really wasn't until I got into the leadership at the King Center that I finally resigned into that role. And um, I recognized 2020 was the first time that I finally settled in and said, you know what, that saying that your mother would repeat all the time, you don't have to be your daddy. You don't have to be me, but just be your best self. It now makes sense because you know what, I don't have to try to carve out this big, enormous legacy. Because guess what, Bernice? They left a legacy. And somebody's got to carry it forward. Because otherwise, it just dies on the vine. And you're it. So when people ask me now, what is your legacy? I tell them, look, I happen to be blessed with generations of social activists. I'm continuing in that tradition and in that vein because my great-grandfather, my grandfather, my father, my mom, you know, they were all social activists and humanitarians, human rights leaders. And I'm trying to make sure what my father in particular and my mother left behind is continued because they intended for it to get to a certain place. So I got to add my bit to this and my responsibility is just to figure out what is my part in carrying this forward instead of trying to figure out what's Bernice's legacy like separate and apart it can't be like you said I'm always gonna be their child and what they gave to this world is so important to this world and, and it's a lot left to be desired related to it so I'm honored to now be just a part of you know, advancing the legacy. I sign things now that says the dream lives, the legacy continues. That's my responsibility, continue this legacy.
1: Uh, well, I know I got to get you out of here in a couple minutes, but I'm going to end it with a game that I play with every guest on here.
2: Oh, my God.
1: You get it easy because of time. You're only going to get one question. So it's a game that I play with all my guests called This or That.
0: The choice is yours. You can oh. get with this or you can get with that. Or you can oh. get with that.
1: I give you two choices. You pick one. Oh, God. This is always where the controversy happens. (laughs) Okay. So we'll end it here. Here's the two choices. You got to pick one. Greens or mac and cheese? Greens. Now, see, you handled that like a pro. (laughs) Now, don't let me find out you can make some mean greens. Can you make some mean greens? Uh, No, I can't. You know, I know how to
2: cook. I never had time to cook. But the only reason I chose it is because I have to be I have to manage the dairy intake. But trust me, if I didn't have to do that, it would be hands down. Not not it has to be the right kind of macaroni and cheese. Everybody can't make macaroni and cheese. (laughs) I've had in my lifetime, I've had some bad macaroni and cheese.
1: (laughs) And when it's bad, it is a disaster.
2: But can I tell you something the best macaroni and cheese that I ever had, a white woman from Memphis, Tennessee made it. And she was a member of Bishop Gilbert Patterson's Church, Church of God in Christ. Oh, wow. I was like, oh Lord, we're going to this lady's house. We're gonna eat before we go. Because we don't, she, you know, she offered to cook and everything. We were scared. Got there. She laid us out on this picnic table. Girl, everything she cooked. I kid you not. It was so good. It was first time I've had fried green tomatoes.
1: Wow, I love fried green tomatoes. Those are so good. (laughs)
2: That food, the greens, the macaroni and cheese. What else? I mean, the the yams. Oh my god. That's the best macaroni and cheese I've
1: had. Well, you know what? I consider that to be racial progress. That's how you, that's that's the common ground. That's the thread that we can all jump in. <laughs> if we have good mac and cheese, a lot of the world's problems will be solved immediately or greens in your case. Well, um, Dr. Bernice King, thank you so much for joining me and spending your time with me. And, Uh, So many people appreciate not just the work of your parents and and your family, but of you specifically. So thank you for being a voice and for your continued commitment to nonviolence, which is really quite extraordinary. Look, God, some days I have to just say God knows my heart and just leave it at
2: that. But, you know, I would love you to go through our online Nonviolence365 online experience. I, I really would. So I'm inviting you to do that. Um, And uh, inviting your listeners, it'll revolutionize your heart and your life. And, you know, at the end of the day, violence will never solve a thing. It feels good because I've been to that place at the end. It's like, yes, that energy, that adrenaline, uh, you know, rushing through you. But it's like, what did I just accomplish?
1: I don't need the violence part of it because I don't want to get sued. But some days it just feels I just gotta stop cussing people out. That's all it is. But <laughs> like, even verbally. Yeah, all right. But
2: even verbally, it feels good. That's what I'm saying. If you if you go through this, it'll revolutionize you internally. And um, it doesn't mean you'll perfect it, but you'll you'll have something to check you in a way that's never checked you before.
1: All right, that's a word. I will accept that invitation and I'll let you know when I go through it. Thank you so much. All right, thank you, Dr. King. P- appreciate you. Appreciate you. Mm-hmm. Alright, Dr. King is getting out of here. Y'all know what's coming up next. Fuck it, I'm bothered.
0: Time to break you off with the fodder. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Hit you with the
1: Last year, when the decision was made to turn Juneteenth into a national holiday, I groaned because I knew some uncomfortable, commercialized nonsense was coming. And fuck it, I'm bothered that I was absolutely right. Of course, it's important that every American understand the history of Juneteenth and get why it's important for it to be celebrated. So I'm not trying to keep Juneteenth all to ourselves. But there's a fine line between celebrating and insulting and And lo and behold, a lot of retailers have no clue where that line is. Walmart recently had to pull its Juneteenth ice cream from the shelves after some intense and deserved backlash on the red velvet flavored ice cream. Because, of course, it was red velvet. The label read, share and celebrate African-American culture, emancipation and enduring hope. Because. As we all know, when Harriet was on the treacherous, dangerous path of the Underground Railroad, what she thought about most was some red velvet ice cream. And I'm sure as the enslaved were being beaten, tortured and killed, they looked to the sky and instead of praying for deliverance, they prayed for some red velvet ice cream. It's like what in the name of Kendall Jenner and the Pepsi can that cures racism is this? Now, Walmart is not the only company capitalizing on Juneteenth being brought into the mainstream. A lot of retailers are selling Juneteenth-related items, paper plates, wines, napkins, whatever. Now, if I'm being honest, it's not solely the commercialized and predictable capitalistic nature that bothers me. It's that Walmart didn't have the good sense to understand that for this holiday to be properly celebrated, even within the context of capitalism, it needed to still symbolize empowerment and liberation since that's the story of Juneteenth. What would have been a better idea is perhaps partnering with a black ice cream maker and featuring them prominently in their stores, which is what Target has done with a black owned brand called Creamelicious, which I hear is quite delicious. Maybe these exclusive partnerships didn't have to be limited to ice cream. They could have had an entire section of black owned brands. My overall point is that if anybody is making money off Juneteenth, if anybody deserves the right to commercialize and turn this into a completely capitalistic related holiday, it should be black people. Because most of the country didn't even know about Juneteenth until President Joe Biden signed the bill, making it a national holiday last year. This isn't to say that Juneteenth has to be built on only serious things because it's supposed to be festive. It's supposed to be a celebration. If you party on Juneteenth, well, that's partly what you're supposed to be doing. Again, you're celebrating. But let's not turn this into yet another example of black people's experiences being exploited for the gain of everyone else, namely white people. Stay unbothered. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered, Inc. From Unbothered, Inc., Christina Tapper is our Head of Content. Ashley Van Horn is our Head of Talent. Ashley J. Hobbs is our creative producer. Rich Berner is our head of network production. And Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Christina Tapper. And project manager is Jessica Dow. Our theme, Word of the Week, and Fuck It, I'm Bothered tracks were written and performed by Brandon Lowe, produced by Lucas Pry and Alexander Hitchens. This or that music, the choice is yours, revisited by Black Sheep written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc. On behalf of itself and Pete Bow Music, you can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. Ha.
0: This sound like theme music. She dropped word of the week, it's best to use it. Shirts. Mm-hmm. Unbothered, never losing. Jamel asked this or that, get to choosing. Pick one. Child of seven five and twenty one, wave goodbye to forty five. Don't make me tell you fifty eleven times from politics to laughs. Every week she shines. My word, how I live, it. you don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it, and you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it. My word, how I live, it. you don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget Sit it Sit back for a minute I was born to get it